we're grateful for your goodness to us. And uh, we're grateful for the word that you have given us. And uh, we want to submit ourselves to you. And, and we pray for the people in our church, our congregation, and relatives, and family, and friends who, who uh, uh, seem to be going through a lot of things these days. And I don't think I've ever um, been in a situation where I've known so many people who are seriously ill and, um, and needing help. And so, Father, we don't know anything to do but to, to hold them before you. And we know that you are good, and we know that you are, um, are gracious, and uh, we just want to trust you and, um, and not um, get distracted with, oh, what's going on in bad news or good news, and get distracted of what's, um, what's alluring, and, and we want to our, build our house on rock, and we want to build it uh, firmly uh, on on uh, the Savior. And so, Father, we're going to ask that you, you be with us this morning, that you, your spirit move among us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, are we on? No, not yet. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate, I wanted um, Rob to read that psalm. I mean, it's, it's close to the end of the book. I have a very complicated relationship with the Psalms. Um, it's kind of a love-hate thing. Um, the, uh, reading the Psalms, it's, uh, I, one of my fa favorite class, classes in seminary was this advanced Hebrew class where we did the Psalms, or studied the Psalms, and to study the Psalms in Hebrew and the original language with all the rhythm and the, and the picture and the, and the metaphors and the symbols, it's just a, it's a great thing to do. Uh, but I end up uh, coming out of each class a little bit conflicted and just, like I said, this really complicated relationship uh, for a couple of reasons. One is their um, shameless expression of emotion. Uh, that's, just not, that's just not right. You know, this is, they're giddy, happy sometimes, and they're, and they're angry, and they're, they're depressed, and they're, they're impulsive and, and, and spontaneity and, and intense joy and at the same time intense, like this one little section, you know, calling for judgment. And it's just really, it's just very, very complicated. It's just kind of strange. And knowing that um, they say to, like, to, to, to praise the Lord with tambourines and drums and, and that's all great. And then dancing, I mean, dancing? I mean, um, I mean, I know Miriam danced and I know David danced. Uh, and I, I had this student once uh, in, uh, in Puebla who was a, a Pentecostal student, and he would, I would preach at his church maybe four times a year or so, and they actually had uh, like high school girls doing dancing in front, and it was gorgeous, it was beautiful, but you're not going to find me dancing. I, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm sorry, I don't, I, it would look too spastic, I don't know how much glory it would bring to God for me to dance, but, so you're not going to find that in me. And so I kind of have that, <laughs> yeah, this awe, did I hear the awe out there? I mean, come on. Uh, but the other reason, and the other reason is this intense uh, search for God, this, this intense thirst. I mean, just flipping through some of the, you know, some of the scriptures here that I have marked, there's a... Uh, uh, 27.4, I have asked the Lord for one thing. This is what I desire. I want to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life so I can glaze on his splendor. 
63.1 is a famous one. Oh, my God, you are my God. I long for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Um, over here on, on uh, Psalm 148, the one right before Rob led, it's praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the sky, in the heavens, in the angels. Praise Him in the assembly. Praise Him the sun and the moon, the shy and the shining stars, the highest heavens. It just goes on and on. And it's this incredible search for God, this hunger, this thirst. And C.S. Lewis, when he writes, he, does, he says, I don't even want to use the word love just the way because our culture understands it. But instead, he uses appetite, and he uses hunger to describe this. And so I'm having to deal with all this and think, you know, um, I think I maybe had that kind of desire before, but studying the Psalms in seminary, I had to say I didn't have it. I really didn't have that hunger and desire. And so I thought, well, I got two options here. I can either uh, develop a theology to, as a pretext for not having that passion and understand it and just develop this system that would explain why I don't have the passion, or I could find a way to capture the passion. Well, I opted for the first option of the theology of pretext. And um, <clears throat> so uh, this is my theology of pretext, I'm just getting it right. I feel like that's more important than passion. That's more important than love. That's more important than, the, than what these psalmists are talking about, just getting it right. Um, <clears throat> we had this fear of emotions that... Uh, Emotions deceive us. And I was taught, I was even taught this in church, that don't depend on your emotions. Don't depend on these, these things, those feelings. They are just, they're too, they're too iffy. They're, they're unreliable. Well, Jonathan Edwards says this, true religion has to affect the heart. If we discredit emotions, we are going to harden the heart and encourage men to continue in their stupidity and foolishness and will keep men in a state of spiritual deadness. This is Jonathan Edwards. If you're not familiar with him, he kind of has this reputation of this guy that's being really hardcore and legalistic. And uh, he's one of the center of the Great, great Awakening in America. Uh, but this is how he feels about emotions. kind of surprises you. And he goes on to say, They are sacred emotions, and we cannot love nor obey God without them. So I thought, well, emotions, emotions, we'll go, go back there here. Emotions deceive, and that's so I said, I can't, I can't do that. You know, I can't depend on that, so that's, I'm doing it right. And besides, uh, Jesus said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments, so that's right. I'll just keep those commandments I will obey, and that will, be, that will show God that I love him and show anybody else that, that I love him, that that's most important, to be biblical or be obedient, and that is the same thing as loving God. Or, <clears throat> or I... Uh, thought that this Christianity that I adopted was getting it right and I was doing God a favor by correcting everyone else, uh, making sure they got it right and put them straight. And I thought that was the way it's supposed to be, uh, being obedient, getting my theology right. But what I was left with was a pretty defective Christianity. And I, uh, I had it, I think, once, but it was... But it was weak, and I had to think, is this the best God has to offer? Or better said, is this the best I have to offer God? Is that it? Um, so I had this false division between obedience and, and passion and love for God. It looked like Christianity. For anybody observing me, it might have looked like Christianity, but it wasn't. 
It wasn't real Christianity. And so I, I came up with a list of culprits that I'm blaming. Actually, it's my own decisions. Choosing Bible knowledge over spiritual intimacy. That it was objective. Uh, that was more important. That, uh, that if I could just connect enough, accumulate enough knowledge. And I'm all for Bible study, okay? I'm all for studying the Bible in a group. I'm studying for Bible and, and, you know, it's very, very important because we need to know the story of redemption and how we fit into that story. So I'm saying it's very important. But I was more caught up in doing it the biblical way instead of the Jesus way. And trying to do things the biblical way, you, you, and that sounds right. I mean, we're a Bible church, right? And that sounds correct, but what happens is we, like Joe was sharing with us yesterday, that there is this difference between, you know, seeing things as, as metaphors and literal. We have to decide that. Then we've got the cultural thing going on there. So it's kind of complicated. And doing things the biblical way, where strictly that, it does paint ourselves into a corner oftentimes. For example, I had, I remember seeing, I remember hearing a message about uh, Nehemiah's principles of leadership. And so he gave this principle of leadership, and he found him in the book of Nehemiah, and he's exactly right. But what he really did was he took his principles of leadership and went and found them in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, one thing he happened to leave out that Nehemiah did as a leader is he pulled the hair out of men who disobeyed. <laughs> I don't know any boss that's going to get away with that today. So... We have to be careful here and see how this kind of fits into the story. And it's not, please hear me, it's not that we love the Bible too much, okay? It's a, it's the danger is that we love the Bible too much in comparison to how little we love Jesus. When that takes precedent, then we're in defective Christianity. And I always use the illustration that when Sue and I had met, she was doing an internship, and I probably have shared this with you, doing an internship in Haiti, and I was in Baltimore, and we wrote letters. And I, I, would, I looked every forward every single week because I would get about a letter a week from her, and it was the highlight of my week. She would get letters from me. She just couldn't read them. She, <laughs> she goes, I didn't even know he loved me until you know, we got back together in person because I couldn't read his handwriting. <laughs> but that's how I see the Scriptures that this is a letter that tells us how much God loves us. And I love the author, not just the book. I love those letters that she sent. I still saved them. But it's because I love the author of those letters, not just the paper and the words that were on them. And I think that's what we are, need to get at. So I was choosing Bible knowledge over spiritual intimacy, thinking that that was sufficient. And then I was choosing insulation over integration. In other words, I was isolating myself from everything around me and the world. It was all, you know, churchy stuff. And I was in seminary, and, and uh, my life was filled up with churchy stuff. Classes, homework, studies, and then I was working in a local church. And, you know, that was all I did. And I started to realize that, so I wanted an outlet, and I, I joined a... Um, Became, I joined the, uh, a, a um, nonprofit, that's what I was trying to think of, that worked in the housing projects in Dallas, just a, sort of a, an outlet of all that stuff. 
And I got a wife in the, in the business, because <laughs> that's where I met Sue. So what I'm saying is we, we want to insulate ourselves, and we want to, and I understand all of that, but it's really odd when I got out of that, when I start looking at my life, when my faith was thriving, was when I was in non-Christian environments. In high school, I mean, you know, I know the problems are different today than they were then, but I had guys trying to sell me drugs in high school, and, you know, we even had a smoking area in our high school where students could go and smoke. Forget about smoking in the boys' room. We could just smoke in school. And there were just other issues, you know, going on. It was the 60s and the 70s. Lots of issues. And then I went to a state university, and I look back, and those were when I thrived the most. And that is also, ironically, that's when my fellowship and my church mattered the most. That when I was in with other non-believers, like my wife, the weeds, like the, the parable, the weeds and the seeds, you know, and Sue keeps telling me, you know, we don't get to choose the separation between the weeds and the seeds, the weeds and the wheat. And when it was that, it was like, that's when church and fellowship and my Christian friends, that's when they became more important than ever. Not when I was isolated by all the, the churchy stuff. And that's what I hope for you, that you are out there being fruit, being ambassadors for Jesus, but loving your church because you need it. And you need the building up, and you need the honesty, and you need the support, and you need the worship. But I was choosing insulation over integration, choosing moralism over transformation, being right, being, being, doing good, being a good boy. And that really wears you out. And it also, what it does is give you pride, judgmentalism, even cruelty, where transformation is totally different. It's not rules that are obeyed. It's living in solidarity with Jesus. And if you look at the way he did it, if you look at the, what he did, he never accused anybody except the accusers. Those are the only people he accused. So we choose moralism. We choose transformation over moralism. And then I chose ecstasy over passion, always trying to look for the next emotional high, maybe, if I can, if I can just look for something that will charge me up and go to a, go to a worship service that will really charge me. And so I be, you can start to you get so dry, you start chasing after those emotions. And that's not good either where we enthrone the, the experience over Christ himself. And then finally, the last culprit was choosing activism over communion. And that happens throughout the spectrum. You know, I'm going to go on mission trips. I'm going to serve in Sunday school. And those are things that are all, all great. Or I'm going to fight for justice. I'm going to fight against racism. Or whatever, you know, you, whatever your burden is. And if we don't bring communion with Christ, what happens is we burn out. We don't have any pathway. We don't have any solid ground to stand on. And we get frustrated when things don't move as fast as, we sh as they should. And so we get burned out. So those are my culprits. Those are the things I'm blaming. Actually, I'm blaming myself because these are the things that I chose instead of Jesus himself. So how do we counter that? It's very, very uh, counterintuitive. One of my favorite examples, in fact, I think one of the best examples in the scriptures of, of how to do this is Mary of Bethany. 
I love her story. I love her. I think she's amazing. And we meet her in, a, in not a whole lot of places, but two or three places. And we meet her in Luke 10, where you know the story, where Mary is with Jesus and Martha is, is off on the, in the kitchen. And in that culture, the men were there, there to learn, and the women were supposed to be off there preparing food for the men while the men discussed important things. And the women were to prepare the food for that, as God intended, right? <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> because Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And we know when, when Paul says he's sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, he is becoming a rabbi like him. He's a student. And that's what Mary was doing. It wasn't she was being lazy. She was learning at the feet of Jesus for how to do it, how to do these things. She had a, 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 an idea of the compelling mission, the compelling message that Jesus had. And she was sitting at his feet to learn all she could about it. How to be a different human. How to spread the kingdom. And so when Martha comes in, it's not, be, not necessarily just because Mary was being lazy. It's because she had broken all the social norms. She's not where she's supposed to be. She's with Jesus at his feet. And the other place we meet, him, meet her is when she anoints his feet with oil and perfume. And she gets criticized for that. But it's because she recognizes the worthiness of the person that she's anointing. It's a very, very special ritual to anoint, to anoint the dead person for burial. And she was doing that before the cross. And that's why Jesus defended her, because she was doing something very important. She recognized how worthy this is and how what kind of person this was. She recognized the compelling vision and she recognized the worth of the person. And that's where it comes in. We have to understand the compelling vision, the compelling message, and the worth of Jesus Christ. And one other little episode that I really love, I don't, I'm not, I don't really have any great lesson from this, it's just that I love it, that when Lazarus died, her brother, and Jesus goes, and Martha says, if you had been here, he, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus teaches Martha and says, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, she's, it's this great I am statement. Mary hears about it and runs to Jesus, and she's weeping, and then it comes and says she's weeping. Twice she says she's weeping. And what happens to Jesus? He's troubled in his soul, and he weeps. And I just love that, that she, because of her, her passion and her love and her feelings for Jesus, it's what broke his heart. She loved her brother, and it broke Jesus' heart, and he wept. I just love those stories about Mary, and I think that's, to me, that's the model that I want to look at. That's the model that I want to see. So, how do we do this? Living freely and lightly. Why do I pick that phrase? Well, back in Matthew um, 11, verse 28, Jesus says, you know what? You're sweating too much. You're, you're, going, you're, you're doing this all wrong. Look and come to me. Take up and be with me. Take company with me and see how I do it. And you will have a life free and light because my yoke is light. 
And so I wanna, what I want to do, this, one of the things I want to do this morning is take this burden off of you and, and tell you that the Christian life is free and it's light. It's not getting it right. It's not making sure other people get it right. It's you freely and living lightly with the light yoke of Jesus. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. How do we do that? We've got to remove the barriers. And I think the primary barriers are a couple. One is guilt and shame. And we have to remove that. But better said, Jesus removes it. It's his blood that takes that away. Quit trying to re-crucify yourself. You can't crucify yourself. We are in Jesus. Like Joe told us yesterday, we are in Christ. So stop trying to crucify yourself. Stop trying to justify yourself. We are justified in Christ. Quit trying to resurrect yourself. You are resurrected in Christ. What we have to do is trust it. Trust him that this is taken care of. Our guilt and shame has been removed. And I don't know about you, and I wrote about this in Connections, but when, I, when I'm feeling really guilty about something and, I've, and I'm just not dealing with it very well, oftentimes the last thing I want to do is pray. And it's not like I have this, you know, I don't know, stubborn look. It's just that, that I feel like deep down God's going to know that I'm really trying to pull one over on him. That I, that I did this, but I'm going to be praying, you know. And so it's like, what's the use? Yeah, that's the time when we need to spend in quiet. Maybe not saying anything, but spend time with them. Remove the barrier. The other barrier we need to remove, though, is the opposite of that, and that is pride. That is the idea that we are know all this stuff, and I'm walking with God, and I'm this, this, this star Christian in my church. I had this paper on my wall that says, Master of Theology. Isn't that crazy? I have mastered the mystery. So if you ever need to know anything, ask me. I have mastered the mystery. What a joke. I mean, I love the time there, but really, seriously, master? Yeah, I don't think so. So pride we remove. <clears throat> Next thing is learn a rhythm. Learn the rhythm. It's not mechanical. Uh, I'm just talking about a rhythm and a routine of being with Jesus. This is what our, really our song, our, our, our soul longs for. We, by instinct, we are worshipers. And I think this is what it longs for. And when we get to that, that theology is not enough, critiquing our culture is not enough, even a revival in a church is not enough. The only thing that is enough is God himself. And that's, that's it. And how do we know him? That's how we do it. Now, I can tell you, uh, you can spend um, decades in church, or in my case, a lifetime, and still not know him. Uh, you can go on short-term missions and think you're doing all, all these great things and still not know him. You can preach, you can lead a Bible study, you can lead a small group, and you can still feel depleted and unsure. I know you can, because I can. It's like if we're doing all those things and we don't know Jesus personally, we're not in the routine, the, the rhythm of spending time with him. It's like we're spending our life practicing the scales, but we're not hearing any music. It's just practicing our, practicing our scales. It's, it's, 
communing with God with really no, no purpose. But we can do that, and you don't need an agenda to do that. Because we have to remember that we're dealing with a real person. A real person who loves, who encourages, who reveals himself to us, who, who uh, is happy with us, who forgives us. And there's many, many, many ways to do this. As long as we get this rhythm of being with him, taking time to be with him. Whether it's, it may be for you baking bread. For, for Sue, it's walk. It's a walk in the morning. She walks around the neighborhood, and, and that started with her physical therapy, I think, and now she just says, I can't stop doing it. It's, my, it's part of her rhythm. It could be making spaghetti sauce. It could be listening to Handel's Messiah or listening to James Taylor. For, you know, It can be any kinds of things that God will, will speak to you, journaling, serving, whatever it is. Just make it a rhythm of part of your life. And it's amazing what God will reveal to you. Not too long ago, there was a, I was just sitting quietly, which I like to do in the morning when things before things start get going. And God brought two people to mind to pray for. And the people I hadn't seen in a long, long time. That same week, I ran into both of them. Just by chance. One was in Mosier. I never go to Mosier. And I saw her. And, and it, was, it was this woman who I know, she was a barista at 10 Speed, and she was a single mom. And, and I know she was having another baby, and... But I hadn't seen her since the baby was born, and, and I got to see her. And if I hadn't had that quiet of just sitting, I, wasn't, I didn't have an agenda. I was just sitting. And God brought those things to mind. We have to learn the rhythm of doing that, whatever works for you. You know, when I was young, they would say, you know, you got to spend, you know, 60 minutes in, in Bible study and prayer. And... You know what? You can't give God an hour of your time every day. You know, that was kind of the, the message we, we got. And I kept wondering, what's, what's magical about 60 minutes? I don't know. There's nothing magical about 60 minutes. But the rhythm, to me, is important. Decentralize the asking part of prayer. We also come to God and you go, well, what do I pray about if I'm not going to ask him something? We are told to ask, but you might try decentralizing that, like the, like the Lord's Prayer. Start off with your relationship with God and then move into the asking stuff. It, it kind of takes away the agenda. And, and we usually pray like crazy when we're suffering, you know. And then we're not, with, after the healing and the quiet, we don't. Why? Because we haven't been in practice of just being with him. He is still there. He is still beautiful. Keeping company with Jesus. We think that maybe Jesus comes and goes, but he's not. He's always there. God is always there. He's like the oxygen we breathe. Dallas Willard says the kingdom is around our ears. And I like to think about it like that. So whether we notice it or whether we feel it or not, he is there. He is always there, unchanging in his kindness, unchanging in his compassion, unchanging in his joy. He is always there. And so we just maintain this posture of receiving it of being aware of seeing them in the flowers and the roses and when i do accompany sue on a walk she walks by this one house 
uh, on May Street that's just got this long row of roses. And I know it's a cliche to stop and smell the roses, but she actually does do that. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't do it unless I was with her. But just that kind of keeping in that, that maintaining that perspective of seeing where God will jump out at you, whether it's in a puppy that follows you or a rose that you're smelling or a deep cup of coffee from 10 speed <laughs> that I actually love. John 15. Well, I think I have it on here. Yeah, I did. John 15, and this is the amazing thing. Jesus is telling his disciples, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what the master's business is. But instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. Do we grasp how significant that is? <laughs> that we are friends with Jesus? He is my friend? And he says, yeah, if you do what I command, what's his command? He spreads it twice in here. Love each other as I've loved you. Amen. You do that, and we're friends. And we need to approach it as friends. We are not when we sit down and quiet and pray, we're not starting a conversation. We are joining in a conversation that's already been gone going. So I used to think that a sign of maturity was um, not having the emotions, not being pulled by the emotions. Well, I'm not buying it anymore. I'm not going to buy it. Um, the Psalms... Tell me just the opposite, and I have to deal with that. That I have to wonder, why isn't my experience match theirs? Who's right here? If we say emotions are worthless, then we have to throw out most of the Psalms. We have to throw out Job. We have to throw out uh, some of the prophets. We have to throw out, you know, not to mention Peter and, and Paul and Jesus himself. So I'm, I'm not buying that anymore. But we have to change from this transactional view of the gospel to a familial version of the gospel. The transaction says, I did this, so now your debt is wiped away and you are forgiven. But you know what? You can forgive somebody and you can wipe their debt off and still not like them and still not love them. So the gospel is more than that. We have, we, we, and I say we evangelicals, have reduced it simply to that. That we keep a, a, a zero account on the ledger sheet. That the gospel is nothing except Jesus paying my debt. And the gospel in the Christian life is nothing but trying to maintain a zero on the balance sheet. By asking forgiveness and confessing. That's important. No doubt the, the Bible talks about that. But to me, it's not what the New Testament emphasizes. The New Testament emphasizes reconciliation. It's a restoring of the friendship with Jesus. That's to me, is what the New Testament emphasizes. This restoration of the, of the, of the friendship. And if we can capture this, it, it creates an a a incredible change in our life.
that we're not in just this transactional mode. Jesus, God can forgive us, but it doesn't mean that he likes us. It doesn't mean that he's happy with us. It doesn't mean that his heart is bursting to share a, heart, uh, share a conversation with us after dinner. It doesn't, but the Bible goes beyond that. Yes, we confess our sins. Yes, we have to recognize that painful truth that we have sinned and that we are sinners and we have distorted creation and we have harmed people. We have to admit that. But it's more than that. Now he is restoring us to the friendship. That's the emphasis I see on the New, in the New Testament. And I believe this is an instinct in us. This is an instinct to worship. It is an instinct to, to come to Jesus like that. Uh, I mean, think about it. Even you know, people who aren't Christians or who don't believe in God, when they see something really cool, they want to share it. And, the, and they have this joy. Um, you know, I, I keep referring to illustrations. She's, she's, a, she's a, a well of illustrations here. So, <laughs> so she, she keeps telling me, show me, she follows these artists. You know, and she's, isn't she amazing? Who's, is it Mary White? Yeah, Mary White. You know, isn't she amazing? Isn't this gorgeous? And it's this instinct to share that with you. And for me, it's the other way. I, I, I'm an auditory person. I'll say, oh, you've got to see this, this video of, of Josh Turner. I mean, he's amazing. Listen to this. This, is, this song is just beautiful. Well, we do that with God. As Christians, we say he is the one that we praise. And all that good stuff, Mary White's paintings, John, James Taylor's music, Josh Turner's music, you know, all this music points us to him. Everything good points us to him. And that's where he calls us. He has restored us to a friendship, not just forgiven a debt. And the gospel is familial, not transactional. So this morning when we celebrate communion, yes, we need to acknowledge that we are sinners. We need to confess our sins. But don't stop there. Recognize that you have been restored to a friendship with Jesus. Recognize that you have been reconciled to a friendship. I'm going to read a passage, and then I'm going to ask um, uh, Oscar and Kendra and Sue if you'll come up and help me uh, do communion. We are doing it by intention this morning, uh, where you come up and take a piece of bread and, and dip it in the, in the juice and take it here at the altar. But I want you, the bread is all gluten-free if you're, if you're wondering. Uh, but uh, just take the time. And I like doing this because, because it requires action. That it requires action. We get up on our feet and we come and say, I want to be restored. I am reconciled to Jesus Christ. So let me read this passage from, from uh, 2 Corinthians. And then we'll, I'll ask the worship team to come up and take communion and, and uh, lead us in, in some worship. Paul writes, And all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them, and he has given us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his plea through us, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. So let me invite you to experience the restoration with Jesus Christ, our friend. Okay? So I want to ask the worship team if you'll come on up and y'all come on up and help me.